0: Both from an educational standpoint, as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. For this episode and the next two episodes, I am pleased to introduce Spencer Levy, Chairman of America's Research for CBRE and Senior Economic Advisor for CBRE. CBRE, of course, is the world's largest commercial brokerage firm, among other services they offer. Spencer actually lives in Baltimore, but he and I work together at Lake Mason. And I thought it would be interesting to bring him on to give an overview both of CBRE's worldwide footprint, as well as their impact in the Washington, D.C. region, and a little bit about his background, as he's an interesting character, as you will hear in this wide-ranging Three episodes. So, this episode, the first episode, we will talk about his bio and his background a little bit. His evolution coming up from New York, going to Cornell, then Harvard Law School, and then getting into real estate law for five years in New York, and then deciding to go into investment banking with Lake Mason in Baltimore, and was there until the financial crisis, and then decided to get into the brokerage industry with CBRE and investment management, and then the research area. So you'll hear about that in the first part episode. The next episode, we talk about CBRE's global footprint and their services, as well as the competitive nature of brokerage and how they look at the brokerage industry. And the final one is about the DC area. And we do a flyover of each product type, including office, retail, industrial, apartments, student housing, and data centers to learn about each of the segments. So I hope you enjoy each of the following three episodes. So I will have a discussion at the beginning of episode two and episode three with a little bit more detail. So without further ado, please enjoy the interview talk with Spencer Levy. Welcome, Spencer, to uh, my podcast, Icons on DC Area Real Estate. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it very much. So Uh, Spencer, tell me a little bit about your current position, role at CBRE, and what you do, and then I thought we'd go into uh, your childhood and your background a little
1: bit. Sure. Well, I'll give you my formal title, then I'll give you my tongue-in-cheek title. My formal title is I am the Chairman of Research in the Americas, and I am Senior Economic Advisor for the company for CBRE. That's my formal title. My informal title is I am the Johnny Cash of real estate because I've been told uh, that more than once because I have been everywhere, man, like his song. Last year, I did 200,000 miles, went to 57 oh different cities to see trends that, imp- that apply to my large real estate investor and occupier client. So I have a really fun job. Keeps me on the road a lot, but um, I meet tens of thousands of people a year, so it's a lot of fun.
0: That's great. So Spencer, where did it all start? For
1: you? Well, where did it all start? Well, my dad was a real estate lawyer, so I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. So Where'd you I grow up? I figured I'd do that. But the growing up, I was in Harrison, New York. Where's
0: is Harrison? Harrison
1: is about 40 minutes north of uh, New York City. I went to Harrison High School. Is that in Westchester County? It yeah. is. Okay. It is. Uh-huh. But I'll, I'll start in the beginning there in a sort of different way. You know, sure. I was uh, a kid in Westchester. I have a sister who's now a doctor. But I think what's relevant is this I was a really bad student. Until I was a junior in high school. Why? And I just was distracted. I was bored. I didn't care. I didn't take it, take what I did seriously. And then something happened. My junior year in high school, a light switch went off in my head where I really just started to work hard. And uh, that was in 1986. Did and, anybody
0: inspire you?
1: Well, there's inspiration, positive inspiration, and there's negative inspiration. There's the... <laughs> Uh, as I say today, I have 99 carrots and one stick in my quiver, right? But when I was a kid, it really wasn't the carrots of seeing what success looked like. It was the stick of I was I had a tremendous fear of failure. And a fear of failure that was instilled in me by my, my dad my sister and others, that finally clicked in. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is I've continued to work hard and I've continued to have professional success. The downside is I continue to work hard and sometimes you can't shut it off. So the good news is I was able to turn the corner when I was 16. The bad news is that whole work-life balance or harmony, as I now call it, still hard to achieve in part because of that driving force from when I was a young man.
0: So you uh, went to at Cornell University. Yeah. I did.
1: I went to Cornell and I uh, was to the School of Industrial and Labor Relations, probably thinking I'd be a labor lawyer or something like that. I loved it, by the way. I loved Cornell, and uh, I still teach up there from time to time. I teach at probably a dozen different schools around the country. I was just at UCLA last week. and went to University of Buffalo tomorrow. Sure. I did Georgetown two weeks ago for, uh, <laughs> for purposes of this uh, this conversation, but I loved it. Uh, I loved the whole process of learning about things I knew nothing about. And um, Was your dad an influence there?
0: I mean, well, he, he
1: was. Time. He was a very bright man. My dad passed away 10 years ago. Uh, at a very young age, but he was a um, tremendous influence on me, uh, both his work ethic, uh, you know, getting to the work seven o'clock in the morning, not coming home till late at night, his putting the clients first always, which is an expression I see actually on the tagline for many of my colleagues here at CBRE, one that I embrace wholeheartedly, client comes first always, to being a, the most ethical guy I ever met. And integrity sounds wishy-washy, sounds like a bunch of hooey. It's not. Every person needs to have a uh, code that they live by, right? You know, you who are on the road must have a code that you can live by. That's a song. Teach your children well. Well, he taught this child well. And so I have a very keen sense of integrity, treating everybody with respect. Uh, And my definition of respect is treating everybody you meet exactly the same, which, by the way, is an anathema to most people. Most people... Uh, we'll treat people that are higher in rank better than they treat people that are lower in mm-hmm. rank. Uh, not me, man. Uh, I treat everybody I meet exactly the same. Now, I do deviate from that. I will deviate from that when I'm in foreign countries, which are much more hierarchical. I got in trouble in Japan once when I treated the boss the same way I treated a <laughs> subordinate. Uh, but nevertheless, integrity and respect, hard work were the three things that uh, my dad really mm-hmm. put into me. And 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 because of that work ethic, I was very fortunate to get into Harvard Law School. And the reason I got into that is I worked really hard, did well in school, I killed it on my boards, and I became a lawyer. And but before I went to law school, my dad said, um,
0: "Your dad go to Harvard too?" No, he
1: went to NYU, and so uh-huh. he said, "I don't want you to become a lawyer." He says, "I want you to do something else." And he said, "But if you're going to become a lawyer, you're going to practice for five years or less, and then you're going to get out." Well, I practiced for five years to the day, I became an investment banker working
0: with you, John, and Leg Mason. So it's, in essence, what you did is you followed your father's footsteps to a point, And he said, don't, you know, don't go beyond this because look at my life. Or maybe there was a different perspective. He thought that he
1: could have been a great broker. It's funny he said that. Interesting. He, he said because his big client was a was a brokerage firm in New York called Cooper Howard, which still sure, around. Sure, of course. And um, you know, I, I used to know those guys. And Howard they, Cooper. Yeah. Oh yeah. And some, <laughs> some, some some big personalities there. Yes. And the reality was, my dad had the same skill set as those guys. He had the same personality as those guys. But those guys were making a lot more
0: money than he was, and he was a successful lawyer. So yeah. he was a marketer to some extent as an attorney.
1: Oh yeah, he was probably the best salesman I'd ever met, and he was an attorney. And so he said, you can do more than being a lawyer. And being a lawyer is a, is a great profession. I have a lot of friends that do it, but I feel that by my switching from law to what was banking, and I'm still essentially a quasi-banker today because I still think like that, it may me be more creative. I try to be as creative as possible every day in the way I look at things. We're sitting here in a conference room as we have this conversation in Baltimore, I spent the first four hours of today working on a presentation, which is as creative as I can make whatever it is that I'm presenting. Because to me, when you are out speaking with clients, you're always selling always doesn't matter if it's at lunch. You're in the elevator. You could be sitting in a pitch. You're selling every time. And the way to make your selling better is to do more storytelling, to be more persuasive. And persuasion has nothing to do with facts or figures. Believe it or not, a lot of people say, oh, that sounds like this guy has completely uh, just jumped off the ship. That's wrong. No, because I have the facts and figures just like everybody else. It's how you make them, bring them to life. It's how you, uh, and you do that through storytelling. So I am Storyteller 101. If anybody follows me on LinkedIn, you read my stories two, three times a week. I write a, a, a blog post, which is very short, or I'll do an uh, audio, very short, and it's always telling a story.
0: So, like Mason, yes, what brought you here to Baltimore from New York?
1: Well, it's a very long, complicated story of a New York guy who married a lovely young woman from Baltimore. Baltimore. That was probably the headline, <laughs> but the the sub headline was when I realized I didn't want to be an attorney. Yes, I tried to get a job in a Another shop in New York City. And believe it or not, jobs in New York City for attorneys wanting to become something else weren't that easy to come by because they didn't think you could add. And they were probably right in my case. They didn't think you knew how to model, which they were right in my case. And uh, maybe you didn't know how to think like a business person. And, well, that's where I differed from them because I always thought differently. Uh, Even when I was a lawyer, I always thought differently. But nevertheless, I got a job offer down here in uh, Baltimore Two thousand from Leg Mason, Dick Himmelfarb, my former boss, still a good friend of mine, a great guy, and uh, basically this pitch was uh, was pretty good. The pitch was he makes New York money living with Baltimore prices. At Are the you time. aiming
0: at real estate at the time? Well, I,
1: that's all I had known. It's
0: all okay, I had that's known. What you did as an attorney?
1: Yeah, and so look, there were you never know the fork in the road you're going to take. So right. I have funny stories about uh, I got offered a job to run marketing for a big tech startup, which became a multi billion dollar company turned it down because I didn't know what it meant. Also, I would say that if my dad was not a real estate lawyer, I probably wouldn't have been in real estate. I really enjoyed bankruptcy law. I really thought that was really the part of law that I found most interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. It just was. And that's probably, like, so when I first got into the law, I said, can I be both a real estate and a bankruptcy lawyer? And he said, no, you got to pick one. That's where we are. So 25 years later, here we are.
0: So you worked uh, prior to coming to Lake Mason, you worked for Whitcoff for a while. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Big New York City developer. He was one of my clients when I was in uh, private practice at a couple of big law firms, Jones Day and Fried Frank. And uh, then my boss went over there and kind of took me with him. And so I worked for him for three years, and which was really cool because everybody thinks like real estate is uh, one thing. You don't know what it is until you're in-house somewhere, seeing how the quote unquote the sausage is made. And it was an invaluable experience because I really understood what a real estate company does more than just buying and selling real estate, all the mm-hmm. things they go into with the modeling, the different service lines, mm-hmm. the madness, the raising of the money, all those things. And it was all good madness. I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative sense, because but for my work at Whitcoff, I couldn't do what I
0: do today. But uh, they didn't want to move you into the business side there.
1: Well, that's so. correct. And that was a, that was a disappointing uh, thing there. And I don't want to go into all the history there. But when I moved there, I thought I'd go from law to business. They're like, no, you're stuck in law. And I was like, well, no, I'm not. And I, and I had to move on, which was disappointing. But nevertheless, I'm better for it. I'm better for it over the long term because I had that great experience there. Then I had to jump into the law. and you know, There's an expression in life, sometimes one steps forward, two steps back. I'd take a step back professionally to go into business. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I, I give credit to my former boss, the guy Dick Himmelfarb, who's a former lawyer himself. And he said, look, you're smart, you're gregarious, but you don't know anything. So go into the cubes and underwrite for the next couple of years and then you'll know something. And that's what I did. I went to the cubes and I underwrote deal after deal after deal. Underwrote a lot of public companies, a lot of REITs, uh, some private companies that had, had REIT-like aspirations. And I learned my craft and then I can go out and sell it. And so now when I speak in public, which I do every single day, I draw upon my experience as a lawyer, my experience as a banker, my experience doing my other things here at CBRE to bring it to bear to the average audience or to the most sophisticated audience in a way that they find persuasive. Because I can't tell you I've seen it all, but I've seen more than most.
0: So uh, some of the other characters you might have worked with are Jeff Rogatz. Mm-hmm. Tom Robinson, mm-hmm. Keith Getter. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it was a good crew back you then stayed, in Leg Mason. Stay Mason's. in touch with those guys. Yeah, I see Tom from time to time, and Keith, I speak to from time to time as well. Peter Swazo, I used to work with him as well mm-hmm. at Leg Mason, and he's now working with Keith at his new shop. You know, I would say I see them or speak to them every every six months or so, and uh, that's good. I wish them well. I just ran into a good buddy of mine, John Mayhan, at the airport the other day, another former colleague of mine. No, the Leg Stiefel guys are great guys and uh, invaluable experience working with them.
0: So then uh, Leg Mason sold and swapped out their uh, investment banking business with uh, Stiefel Nicholas. Stiefel as a result of the trade with Citibank initially. Yes. Because um, I was at Leg at the time that happened. and It, it caused a lot of consternation, more or less. The company kind of split up into multiple pieces because several guys went different directions. Yes. Some went in the public side, some went. Started their own companies and other things. Guys like Rich Jacobs and his gang.
1: Sure, Rich different. Jacobs, Kyle Gore, That's uh, right. good friends of mine. Um, so exactly. good, good, good guys. They're two of the uh, pioneers of the credit tenant lease space. They've been very successful. I'm very. I worked happy. with them for two years. Yeah. so good guys. But yep. yeah, look, the bargain that I struck when I moved from New York to Baltimore was that I would still have New York style banking. Right. But there was the the key change that happened um, was about a year before I got here was the getting rid of the Glass steagall uh, law that prohibited investment banks from banking from lending to their clients. Once that law was was removed, the big got bigger and the small got smaller. And so Leg Mason, which used to have what was known as bulge bulge-brack status, bulge bracket status on the cover of um, offerings. And we wrote to the left of the big firms, started getting moved further and further down because if you weren't lending, you weren't able to uh, compete anymore. And once I saw myself getting further and further down on the covers of these deals, I felt that I was in too small of a shop. And so that's when I started looking around about two years later. And I had offers from New York City-based investment banks. But then I got this offer from CBRE. And I said, you know, I've got this unique skill set that I can bring to bear in this Unbelievable platform, and I, I might be the big fish in the big pond, or just a fish in the big pond that has a different skill set than the other fish. Sure, and so uh, it's really worked out well for me. I've been at CBRE now for not quite thirteen years. Uh, I've been in a variety of roles. I started off yeah. running capital markets. I actually ran capital markets uh, in the eastern half of the U.S. for about six months, mm-hmm. and then the world went, uh, shall we say, in the proverbial hell in the hand basket. Oh eight. 08. Yeah. And then um, the this thing came out called TARP uh-huh. in September of 08, right after uh, the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. Yep. And I read it, and I summarized it in five bullet points for my boss. And he sent that to his boss, a guy, uh, Cal Freese, who's uh, no longer with the company. And Cal sent me back an email. And he goes, Spence, since you're the only guy in the company who seems to know what's going on, You're now running the restructuring division. (laughs) And I said, Cal, we don't have a restructuring division. His next line was, we do now. And so I ran uh, restructuring services for three years uh, for the company. What did you do for that? Well, I met with every bank. I met with every government agency. But it also led to what I do today, not just from the substance standpoint of understanding how banks think and government agencies think. and We won some major government accounts during that period of time. It also launched me in my public speaking career. And why is that? Because TARP and TALF and PIP and all these crazy acronyms, combined with the fact that people were scared to death because they thought the end of the world was around the corner. And from a financial point of view, they weren't completely wrong. They needed somebody to go out there and reassure the market. And so uh, the company trained me how to speak publicly, literally. They sent me in front of professional trainers how to speak, and I practiced and practiced and practiced. And then for the last 12, 13 years, this is not smug. This is reality. I am near certain. I have given more speeches than anybody in the entire commercial real estate industry, certainly in the United States, maybe on the planet. And because of that, I now have the ability to communicate at a level in a manner that um, I'm very proud of.
0: Great. That's awesome. So I understand you're writing a book.
1: Yes, I am writing a book. And the first draft of the book is now done. And I'm now editing it. Really? And uh, I guess the, uh, I don't want to bring up something that's too negative, but I'll bring it up because it's true. This terrible tragedy that's going on globally now with the coronavirus, I'm going to be traveling a whole lot less. I've had several conferences that have been canceled. And really? I, well,
0: my I, was just canceled.
1: Yeah. And I have several more that may, may happen again. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Well, it's reality. And so I need to finish editing my book. And so I'm now going to have some more down. free time and I'm going to be spending it editing the book. So the, what the book is about is how to speak in public as a corporate speaker, not as a rock star, not as a country Western singer, but as a corporate professional, how can you be that good, right? So the working title of the book, and I may change it, is Public Speaking Rock Stars." What does that mean? It means the things that I have learned in my 13 years on the road doing this, plus the 10 years prior, I had plenty of experience there too, of doing this, and I have now gotten to a level of professional speaking that is well beyond 99.9% of the the world. And I think I have something to offer because I think that public speaking is the lowest hanging fruit of all the skill set fruits out there, Mm -hmm. the lowest hanging fruit out there, because most people are terrible at it. Most people don't care that they're terrible at it. They'd rather go formulaic. And that creates the opportunity for people that are different, that people are are storytellers who care about how the message is delivered rather than getting the best chart up there. There is no such thing as a killer chart. There's no such thing as a killer fact. There is only persuasion. And how do you bring that persuasion to bear in a corporate context? And that's what my thing is about. Now, I've written it my way because I've met with, Professional speakers, I've met with authors. And what they have said to me is, you got to do it in a certain corporate way. I said, no way. I said, the only way this book's being written is in my voice uh-huh. because A, that's the only way I'm reading it. And B, it's the only way I would have write, written it. So, reading and writing, my voice, hopefully it'll be out by the end of Sir, the year.
0: It, there's no real estate involvement is purely speaking.
1: Well, there's real estate in it from the standpoint of those where all my experiences come from. Right. Uh, I was going to write a book about what I know about real estate. And then I realized I didn't know anything. That's a joke, John. I hear you. And, but no, I uh, this this is a book that spoke to me. It came, it, it came about organically. And perhaps my next book will be about real estate.
0: Good. Good. Do you get into why you were interested in speaking and what drove you to want to be a good public speaker just out of curiosity
1: well the first speech i gave was when i was no 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 the first real speech professional speech putting aside pitches and things like that was in 2008 right in the middle of the crisis the crisis and i had to get on the on the horn in front of thousands of our clients who were freaking out and tell them everything's going to be okay. I had a fully written out speech, which I read word for word. It was horrible. When I say it was horrible, the worst speech I've ever delivered. First one, I even got a call. It said, sounds like you were reading. I'm like, yep, I was. And so I didn't go into public speaking because I wanted to be a public speaker. I sort of fell into it. And then I got good at it, really good at it. And because of that, it sort of fed on itself until, I guess, my big break. And everybody in life, no matter what you do, needs a big break. My big break happened back in 2015. It was after I already became the head of research for the Americas. And I was at a big event in Denver. And it was called Economic Theater. And the person who gave me that opportunity, a friend of mine, senior leader of this company named Ed Schreier, said, we want the full you. Just bring it. And I gave full economic theater in a way that nobody had ever seen before. I had a costume change. Long story short was, it got a standing ovation, probably the only speech in economics history to get a standing ovation. And by the way, this was in front of 2,500 people, but also in that audience was the CEO, the board of directors, every senior leader. And they came up to me afterwards and said, Spence, that's what you're going to do. So here we are. So I wouldn't say I picked it, sort of picked me.
0: Interesting. So we have young listeners on the audience. So what what advice would you give to people when they're planning a a speech? Not necessarily their first speech. They've done it a few times, but what what are the kind of the principles of public speaking from your perspective? And I know you're going to talk about it in your book, but can you give us kind of a sneak preview of advice you'd give to young people?
1: Sure. So the basics are only half the battle. What are what are the basics? The basics are knowing your subject matter cold knowing your audience cold, knowing uh, the forum and messaging, all that stuff cold. And there's great books on this. If you want to get one book recommendation, that's not my own. There's a terrific book called Speak Like Churchill, Stand Stand Like Lincoln. It's a short, easy read. Pick it up. You'll get all of the the basic tips. It's, it's, It's terrific. And I read the book. Then you need to have one key fact. It's called courage. There's nothing that got me further in my career than just that because I saw the formulaic way of speaking corporately and I utterly rejected it. I said, This is not working. It certainly wasn't working for me personally. It wasn't working for me professionally. The goal is to win, to quote Herman, the, for, the former coach of the New York Jets, said that once infamously. But the goal is to give the best speech possible. And that means storytelling, mm-hmm. be spoken to the way you would speak to others. Mm-hmm. And have the courage to break outside of the box of how most people expect you to speak. You will shine like a star before you know it. Now, that's the good news. Here's the bad news. I'm literally sitting here in a conference room with John in Baltimore right now. And I just practiced a speech that I'll be giving all spring, which took me three months to write. And the practice today was just my first live practice session. So it takes a lot of hard work. But the way to practice is just is more important than how you perform, and the way I practice is not just in front of a live audience of peers. I also am going to do a few smaller gigs first before I bring it out to the big stage. So get the basics down cold, but the other fifty percent starting with courage and practice is where it's at.
0: So for this segment of our three part podcast, let me ask, let me conclude the first segment here with a question as to why are you doing what you're doing for CBRE? I mean, you travel around the world and doing all that. What does this do for CBRE as a company? How are you bringing value to the company?
1: Well, I'll find out around bonus time, won't I? I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I see more people than probably anybody in the company, either in person, on conference calls, or via my social media presence, which is uh, pretty extensive. And what I try to do is there's the touchy-feely stuff which is the improving the quality of the brand the uh, improving how they think of us they think that we're smarter those types of things more engaging but then there's the tangible things when I go meet with many of these clients particularly the global clients it translates directly into wins for some of our core businesses whether it be large wins for uh, corporate accounts it could be wins on getting asset management or property management services, it could be valuation services. And I can give you a hundred examples of how my creating or enhancing these relationships leads to very bottom line dollars to the the company uh, on a daily basis. So it's the the more intangible things, which are probably most prevalent, but the tangible things are there as well.
0: That's great. Spencer, thank you very much for your time on segment one of our talk today. We are going on to to two additional segments that will be broadcasted subsequently. So, thank you, John. Thank you very much.